I do need to say how much fun it is to be back. <laughs> it's only been 20 years, hey. And that was a great wedding, by the way. <laughs> I have a problem. I suspect all of your various ministers have the same problem. Most Unitarian Universalist ministers do. Here's the scene. I'm at a party or some other, other social event and strike up a conversation with somebody that I've never met before, a new friend. We chat about this and that, and eventually conversation comes around to new friend asking me, what do you do? Well, I know what's coming. So I try to hide, uh, move off to the side with, oh, I'm retired. <laughs> Rarely works. Because the next question is almost always, oh, well, what did you retire from? At that point, I can see it on the horizon. Well, I'm a retired Unitarian Universalist minister. Well, it may be two or 3% of the time they know a little bit about Unitarian Universalism, and that's good enough, but almost all the time, it's not. It leads to questions like, well, what's Unitarian Universalism? And it's getting closer. So I start asking, answering her questions, and there's, well, what about the Bible? Or, or do you accept Jesus? Or, 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 and it's getting closer. She's circling around the 500-pound gorilla. It's getting closer. Wait for it. Here it comes. Here it comes. The question. But you do believe in God, don't you? And I'm stuck. Because... There's absolutely no way to answer that question without or with any hope whatsoever of being understood, at least short of a short course in theology. But this morning, a short course in theology is clearly not appropriate, so a micro course will have to do. You see, she thinks she's asked a straightforward question, but it's not. It's a very complicated question, masquerading as a simple question. And if you'll pardon the expression, God save us from such questions. See, the word God is so ambiguous that it's almost meaningless. I mean, which God are we talking about? The God of the Old Testament? The God of the New Testament? John Calvin's God? Martin Luther King Jr.'s God, the Muslim God, the Hindu God, and if that's it, which Hindu God, and on and on and on and on. So let me outline my answer, my real answer, quickly and briefly to the question. And in true Unitarian Universalist fashion, I'll start with what I don't believe. But I promise I'll get around to what I do believe in due course. Be patient. You don't get off that easily. So to begin with, I do not believe in any kind of supreme being. 
I don't even understand what a supreme being might be. As I look over the things in the universe, the 10,000 things, to use a Chinese turn of phrase, I'm sorry, but I just don't see any hierarchy at all. I just see stuff, things, you know, sealing wax, cabbages, kings, Uncle Harry, Aunt Matilda, and on and on and on through the list. How any one of these things could possibly be better than or superior to another just escapes me. At least it does unless we admit that the whole idea of a hierarchy is simply our projection of human values onto the list. But then the hierarchy is not in the furniture of the universe at all. It's in us. But that means it's different from person to person and culture to culture. <clears throat> There's no inherent better or worse, so no supremeness to anything in the universe whatsoever. So, nope, no supreme being. And therefore, I do not believe in a God that has any human characteristics. I don't believe in a God that wills or gets angry or watches over us or gets jealous or judges or loves or hates or gets bored or anything else. These are all just projections of what we do, what we think, what we feel onto that which we neither understand nor even comprehend. See, the problem is that to communicate, we have to use language. Now, don't misunderstand. I love language. Use it all the time. But language, like all human inventions, has its limitations. Language inevitably talks about things. Talks about things. And that means there's a problem. Because language requires names, nouns. And there's a problem with naming, or if you will, nouning God. You see, nouns pick things out. For example, a ball is a small round object that's light enough that we can play with it. A ball is not a toothpick. So when someone says, Jane picked up the ball and tossed it to Dick, we know that she did not pick up a small piece of wood used to clean the teeth and toss it to Dick. So consider, what would the word God pick out? Can't pick out anything because there's no thing, which is God. Now, don't jump to a hasty conclusion. I'm not an atheist. I'm not suggesting that God is nothing at all. I'm simply saying that God is not a thing. And so you can't name God. The word God is not a noun like the word ball. And this is why the Torah forbids us from uttering the name of God. God has no name. To name God would be to make of God a thing and thus an idol. 
trying to name God is idolatry, not to mention futile. So you may well be asking, what kind of word is the word God? Aha! We're getting somewhere. This is the question that leads to the short course in theology. The Buddha once remarked that he and his teachings were nothing but a finger pointing to the moon, and only a fool would confuse the moon with the finger that points to it. What does it point to then? Mm. That is the question, eh? What does it point to? Well, here is what I'm talking about. The story begins way back yonder in the early 60s when I was about 16 years old. For several years, <clears throat> I'd started to have some very peculiar experiences that are very difficult for me to describe. It was as if the edges of things began to soften and dissolve. And so the distinction between me and those things out there began to disappear. And at first that was pretty scary, actually, and I resisted it. But then the thunderstorm happened. Now I was always, from the time I was about yo high, I was always a lover of thunderstorm. I was the kid who would run out into them while everyone else was running away from them. Well, this, this spring afternoon, the thunderstorm hit, and it happened to be close to dinner time, and so I had to have dinner. So, but after dinner, I ran out into what was left of it. What was left was in the east, there were dark clouds right, and with the remnants of the storm that was moving away. But in the west, in the west, these huge clouds were rising rapidly, rising so fast that, that even after the sun set, they were reflecting the light of the setting sun back down onto the earth. So it stayed light later than it normally would. And this light was this bright gold, putting a golden color over everything. And since it was lasting so long, the evening course of the birds lasted longer than it usually did. Finally, the clouds reached a height that couldn't go any higher, and night fell as suddenly as a hailstone. And the, quiet, the birds quieted, but the chorus of night frogs and crickets took up the song just at the same rate, so the level of sound never decreased, it just changed in quality. And this is what I walked out into. And the edges began to melt again. And for some reason that I'll never know, rather than being afraid of it and resisting it, I just opened myself to it. And I simply can't explain what happened next. William James called these kinds of experiences ineffable. What happened was that everything, just everything out there opened and I saw that everything is holy. And I felt something I'd never felt before. I felt a peace, a serenity, an acceptance just descend upon my soul like snow everywhere, carefully descending 
to borrow a phrase from E.E. E. Cummings. And remember Wordsworth now. The breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended. We are laid asleep in body and become a living soul. While with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. At the center of that serenity, a serenity that embraced and folded all into a unity, I then felt a presence embracing me, embracing me and knew something I'd never understood. I knew without a doubt, without hesitation, without wonder, wondering that no matter what happens to me, be it good, be it filled with pain, I am embraced by presence. It is always with me. Bidden or unbidden, it is always with me. Wherever I go, whatever I do, whatever happens to me through the dark night and the bright dawns of my soul, presence is with me. And so Wordsworth again. I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man. A motion and a spirit that impels all living things, all objects of all thought and rolls through all things. I love Wordsworth. This is the first time I had such an experience, and now, nearly 61 years later, it's as fresh in my soul as if it happened last night. I've had others since then, some less vivid, some equally, at least once more vivid. For example, several years ago, I had a dream that consisted of a single sentence spoken to me. What I heard was, Go thou peaceful in the world, for I am with thee. So what is this presence that I experienced? Well, in the sense of science, I have to say I haven't a clue. I just don't know. Because science studies and describes things of this world, the nameable things. Presence can't be named can only be pointed to. But there's another sense of knowing that is not about the nameable world. This is the sense that's about healing rather than describing. And it's the sense in which the Bible tells us, you shall know the truth and it shall set you free. The truth will heal you. This is the sense in which Wordsworth saw into the life of things, that seeing was healing. 
This is the sense in which the Christian asserts proudly and happily, I know that my Redeemer liveth, for in that mythology the Christian is healed. This is the sense in which the Buddha knew release from suffering, and this is the sense in which I know the presence. So re to return to new friend and the question. Well, you do believe in God, don't you? Well, I choose not to use the language of God because it is so fraught with confusion. But I do believe in that which is not of this world, but without which there is no world, and when within which we are all infinite. Every single one of us is infinite because we are enveloped in it. I do believe in that presence which is the anchor of my purest thought, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my mortal being. Is that God? Well, you decide. Having experienced presence, I find the question to be irrelevant. But I do know, I do know that we do not need to become holy. None of us needs to do that because we are already holy. And this is a contemporary version of the old universalist doctrine that we don't need to be saved. We are already saved, we are, but we, what we need to do is live within the salvation, or in my language, the holiness that is already ours. Oh, and that silent black cat, almost forgot about the cat. I also believe in that. 